Hello and welcome back to the Gospel Podcast. I am your host, Colton McAteer, and today we are going to be reading a a chapter from a very small book. Um, It is a short chapter. The book is called Christians Are Forever by John Owen. And I'm actually not going to do a uh, a review on his life. It it is it has dawned on me that maybe sometimes we would listen to sermons from some of these guys or read books from some of them, almost as a an academic uh, means, just to kind of learn about oh, what were they thinking, or maybe just it's it's amusing to to look at the history of it. Those things are interesting and all, but um, my hope and my goal for this podcast is edification of saints, and so. I'm not going to talk about his life. I'm not going to talk about his testimony. I just want you to think about what he's written. I want you to think about uh, why you're listening to it and uh, and ask the Lord to use it to edify you because that is ultimately uh, what's going to really what this podcast is about. It's um, interesting in some facets with historical stuff, but if it's not edifying to you, it's really not doing what uh, what I set out to uh, what it what it has been set out to accomplish. So I appreciate you tuning in. I thank you. And, um, you know, as, as always, um, to God be the glory. Christ work on earth. From the book Christians are forever. Written by John Owen. We shall now turn to the meditation of Christ. He is the guarantee or surety of the Father's faithfulness to us and the surety for us of our faithfulness to him. We ask then, what have Christ's sacrifice and intercessions to do with the perseverance of the saints? There is no doubt. There is no doubting the fact of his intercession. He is able to save completely forever those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Hebrews 7.25 The sacrifice of Christ also safeguards the salvation of his saints. It does this in two ways. It removes everything that separates believers from God. This may be summed up as A. The guilt of sin and B. The power of sin and Satan. The guilt of sin is removed because Christ has obtained eternal redemption for us. Hebrews 9.12 Through his death, we have forgiveness of sins forever. Ephesians 1.7 The Old Testament animal sacrifices were a pattern of Christ's death. They were offered year by year on the altar, but they could never make perfect those who came to God with them or acquit the worshipers of sin. If sin had been taken away by the sacrifices offered as the law required, the worshippers would not have need to come time after time to repeat the same sacrifices. Hebrews 10, 1-3 By contrast, Christ's offering of himself once for all as a sacrifice for sin makes perfect forever those who are set apart to God. Those for whom Christ died are no longer under the condemnation of God for their sin. Christ reconciles the Father to us, making him at one towards us and brings in for us and brings in for us an everlasting righteousness which God will accept. The question asked in Romans 8:34, who is he that condemns? 
is fully answered. Christ Jesus died. More than that, was raised to life. Notwithstanding the death of Christ, many live painfully aware of the guilt of sin all their lives. Yet it is, yet its guilt is completely taken away from all those who, for whom Christ died, so that it will never separate them eternally from God. In the obedience and death of His Son, God made a way by which His eternal purpose of saving purposes of saving grace could be revealed. The declared judgment of God is that those who commit sin deserve to die, Romans 1.32. Yet by his righteousness, Christ has provided a way by which God may justly receive his sinning creatures to a favor again. To favor again. God's justice is satisfied not by anything we have done, but by what Christ has done. In Christ's sacrifice, the law of God is fulfilled. This law of God is a reflection of his holy, own holiness. It calls for a curse on all who fail to do everything written in it. Christ, by his death, put himself under the curse of the law for those for whom he died. Written into God's law is this great curse on all who break the law. But in the law, there is only one curse. It has not another for those of whose behalf Christ died. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 God made him who, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God's truth is satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ. At the beginning, God declared a warning against sin. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2.17 The sacrifices of old seem to provide an answer and that there was a death that of a victim but the life of an animal could never be thought of as reaching a level of worth that god's judgment or sin requires hebrews 10 4 makes this plain it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins what is christ's answer to this here i am i have come to do your will O god will he be accepted acceptable to the father yes he certainly will because of his intrinsic worth god's justice is upheld by the sacrifice of christ because of it god fulfills every part of the covenant made with christ on behalf of those for whom he is the mediator some have raised the question what if what if any of those for whom Christ died should themselves die without being born again? Would they not be overtaken by the justice and condemning power of the law of God in spite of Christ's death? Put this away. It is impossible to ask this question because Christ died so that those for whom he died should be born again and live. This they will be in due time. None of them will die in their sins. Some might argue that if Christ has so satisfied God's justice and fulfilled the law on behalf of all for whom he died, there is no need for them to believe. Or, if they do believe, there is no need for them to live a holy life. This argument is completely false. Though the justice, through, though the justice law, and truth of God are satisfied with regard to their sin, God still requires his people to live by the law of faith. Faith gives God all the glory for his grace exalts Jesus Christ and empties the sinner of any trust in himself for salvation. 
We cannot think of the freedom from condemnation that the death of Christ brings without also remembering that Christ purchased for us the gift of the Holy Spirit and his grace. By the working of his grace in our hearts, we are not only set free from the guilt of sin, but from its power also. We who are born again have died to sin that it should not reign in us. Those who think that faith, holiness, and communion with God are only means for escaping the wrath to come have little understanding of what it means to be changed into the image of the glory of God. These graces make us fruitful in God's service here and prepare us to be made in the, his likeness hereafter. By his death, Christ obtained eternal redemption for us, which is the forgiveness of sins, Hebrews 9.12 and Ephesians 1.7. Forgiveness of sins applied to the consciences of believers requires the activity of faith so that Christ may be received according to the promise. Who has become for us wisdom from God? That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30 Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, and the Father accepted his discharge of our debt. Yet this freedom from condemnation does not set believers free from the necessity of obeying God. Our union with Christ is such that the, those things which he has done for us, we are said to do together with him. Thus we died with him and are raised again with him. With him also we enter into the holy place. With all these being done for us by our head, can death now have any authority over us? As the apostle argues in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, that is, all those for whom he died. They died in him, when he, as their representative, died and took upon himself the curse due to their sins, so that they in future might live to him who died for them. The agreement between the Father and the Son required that the Savior should make his soul an offering for sin. By this he would do what the sacrifices of bulls and goats stood for but could never actually perform. The Father dealt with the Son in perfect justice, not reducing the punishment that Christ took upon himself. Now that the ransom has been paid, shall not the prisoner be set free? With the debt paid, the law has no power against the original debtor. Our fallen nature does not allow us to do any good things towards God. If we are to be quickened into newness of life and have faith towards Christ Jesus, it must be by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. By the Spirit, God works in us that we both want and want to do what is pleasing to God. Philippians 2.13 We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 In a special way, this means the Holy Spirit himself. He gives us the faith to receive the atonement of the reconciliation with which God is completely satisfied. We see, therefore, that everything to do with our salvation is brought about by the mediation of Christ. Christ's mediation springs from the glorious purpose of God in salvation and effectively brings it about. This act of the will of God is known in the scriptures as election or predestination or the purpose of his will in Christ Jesus. Of itself, it is not, strictly speaking, that acts of forgiveness, nor are those so ju chosen justified in any sense by it. It is through the mediation of the blood of Christ that we are reconciled to God. God absolves, for those, God absolves those for whom Christ died from the sentence and curse of the law of God. By sending his spirit, 
his son into their heart, the spirit of his son into their hearts. He leads them on into obedience and sanctification. The Savior ensures the love of the saints to God by taking away everything that might cause them to depart from God. What is it that makes believers turn away from God? The answer to that question may be summed up as Satan and his works. Satan is called the God of this world. The world under Satan's control is under God's curse. Satan uses the world as an instrument to hurt us and tempt us to go far away from God. The world has no power of itself to do this, but only as Satan uses it. Jesus encourages his disciples, Take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16.33 How does Christ deal with Satan? On the cross, he conquered and broke Satan's power, finding the strong man and spoiling his goods. There are two ways by which the blood of Christ breaks the power of Satan over God's elect. A. He takes away the right which Satan had by sin to rule over God's elect. Satan rules over unbelievers with the terror of death and hell. He keeps innumerable souls in cruel bondage. Some, he even drives to commit barbarous cruelties in an endeavor to make their own atonement for their sins. Satan not only rules over them, he rules in them because he rules in the children of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 2. How then does Christ break the dominion of Satan over God's elect? In the first place, by his own death, which strips Satan of his power over them. All Satan's powers, power lies in death. Death came into the world through sin. Jesus Christ, by taking away sin through his death on the cross, destroyed the whole authority of Satan. And in the second place, Christ takes away the ability of Satan to exercise his power. He binds the strong man and leads him captive. Christ destroys Satan and his works. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 3, 8. He not only binds the strong man armed, he spoils his goods. By Christ's death, the believer's old self is crucified so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. Romans 6, 6. Summing up this section, we may say that the death of Christ so takes away the guilt of sin that it will never be able to turn the love of God away from believers. Christ so breaks the rule of Satan and the power of sin that they will never be able wholly to turn away from God. Second, the Holy Spirit comes to God's elect through the mediation of Christ because of the new covenant. The spiritual graces, like the gift of faith, do not come to us as the result of God's providential dealings with men. Faith to receive the pardon of sin does not spring from a covenant of works. The mercies, the mercies of the covenant are obtained from the mediator of the new covenant, who is Christ. As Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set men free, set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant, that promised inheritance was in a special way the Holy Spirit, who was sent from the Father as the answer to Christ's intercessions, John fourteen sixteen and seventeen. Christ encourages us to take the Holy, take, ask for the Holy Spirit from the Father, so that we might have a fuller revelation of Christ to us, John sixteen fourteen. Some people may fear that, although they readily admit that the Holy Spirit is given to believers, they might foolishly and finally reject him, and he would not return. 
Should they do so, would it not increase their condemnation more than if they had not received him at all? Romans eight fourteen through 15 The promises of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit show the facts to be otherwise. A. There is the Father's promise in Isaiah fifty nine twenty one. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth. From this time on and forever, says the Lord. There is the Son's witness to the permanent presence of his spirit with those who believe. In John fourteen sixteen, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. This assurance applies not only to the disciples to whom he spoke, but to all believers throughout succeeding generations. John seventeen twenty. Finally, we have the Spirit's witness. As the Father and Son gave their testimony in a word of promise, so the Spirit bears his own distinct testimony as he performs his work. Second Corinthians one twenty two speaks of God setting his seal of ownership on us and putting us putting his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Sealing is a legal term derived from the common practice in civil transactions. A seal is affixed and duly witnessed for two reasons. First, to ensure secrecy and security to the thing sealed. Second, to make sure that what has to be done is done. In the first sense, coins or other articles are sealed up in bags and kept securely, no one daring to break the seals. In the second sense, legal documents of all kinds are made valid by the sealing affixed to them. So the sealing of the Holy Spirit is, in this second sense, the means by which the promises are confirmed to the believer. Sealing, in the first sense, is also involved when believers are said to be sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30 Their safety and preservation are assured by the Spirit to the full enjoyment of what Christ has purchased for them.